Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make living people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Gray Area Foundation for the Arts Historic Grand Theater in the ever-resistant to infiltration mission district of San Francisco. You are not alone. Playing for Team Human tonight, author of Autonomous, and Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction, founder of io9, science journalist and science fiction creator, Annalee Newitz. And, and then the author of Net Smart Smart Mobs Virtual Reality and Virtual Community Cyberculture Pioneer, Educator, Artist, Visionary, and Shoe Painter, Howard Rheingold. <laughs> Autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media seem to have overturned civil society paralyzing our ability to think constructively, connect meaningfully, or act purposefully. It feels as if civilization itself were on the brink and that we lack the collective willpower and coordination necessary to address issues of vital importance to the very survival of our species. It doesn't have to be this way. Everyone is asking how we got here, as if this were some random slide toward collective incoherence and disempowerment. It is not. 
There's a reason for our current predicament, an anti-human agenda embedded in our technology, our markets, and our major cultural institutions, from education and religion to civics and media. It has turned them from forces for human connection and expression into ones of isolation and repression. By unearthing this agenda, we render ourselves capable of transcending its paralyzing effects, reconnecting to one another, and remaking society toward human ends rather than the end of humans. The first step toward reversing our predicament is to recognize that being human is a team sport. We cannot be fully human alone. Anything that brings us together fosters our humanity. Likewise, anything that separates us makes us feel less human and less able to exercise our individual or collective will. We use our social connections to orient ourselves, to ensure mutual survival, and to derive meaning and purpose. This is not merely a quaint notion, but our biological legacy. People who are disconnected from the organizations or communities they serve often wither without them. That's why we've developed so many painstakingly evolved means of communicating with each other. We may be communicating in order to achieve some common goal, such as finding food or evading prey, or we may simply be communicating for the heck of it, because we gain strength, pleasure, and purpose as we develop rapport. Are you there? Yes, I hear you. You are not alone. We've amplified and extended our natural ability to connect by inventing various forms of media. Even a one-way medium, like a book, creates a new intimacy as it lets us see the world through another person's eyes. Television lets us bear witness to what's happening to people across the globe and to do so en masse. On TV, we watch the moon landing, the Olympics, the felling of the Berlin Wall together, simultaneously, and experienced our collective humanity as never before. Likewise, the internet connects us more deliberately and in some ways reassuringly than any other medium before it. With its invention, the tyranny of top-down broadcast media seemed to be broken by the peer-to-peer -peer connections and free expressions of every human node on the network. The net turned media back into a collective, participatory, and social landscape. But as seemingly happens to each and every new medium, the net went from being a social platform to an isolating one. Instead of forging new relationships between people, our digital technologies came to replace them with something else. We're currently living with an unprecedented amount of communications technology at our disposal. Our culture is composed of more mediated experiences than of directly lived ones. Yet we are also more alone and atomized than ever before. Our most advanced technologies are not enhancing our connectivity, but thwarting it. They're replacing and devaluing our humanity, and in many different ways, leading us to do so as well. Sadly, but also reversibly, this has been by design. We are building our future technological infrastructure based on some very old and disparaging notions about human beings and their place in the natural order. Technologists at the very heart of our biggest tech firms and the most elite engineering schools tend to see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution. When they're not developing interfaces to control us, they're building intelligences to replace us. Any of these technologies could easily be steered toward extending our human capabilities and collective power. 
Instead, they're deployed in concert with the demands of the marketplace, political sphere, and power structure that depends on human isolation and predictability in order to operate. Social control is based on thwarting social contact and exploiting the resulting disorientation and despair. It actively stunts our mechanisms for advancement and mutual aid. Human beings evolve by gaining the capacity to forge greater numbers of social connections. The development of our brain, language, text, electronic media, and digital networks were all driven by our need for higher levels of social organization. The net, just the latest of these advances, challenges us with the possibility that thinking and memory may not be personal at all, but group activities. But this potential has been overshadowed by a deep suspicion of how human beings might behave as an empowered collective, as well as a growing awareness that socially fulfilled people need less money, experience less shame, behave less predictably, and act more autonomously. Thinking, feeling, connected people undermine the institutions that would control them. They always have. New mechanisms for forging bonds and cooperation between people are almost inevitably turned against those ends. That's true for everything from language and money to education and digital networks. Philosophies about human frailty, selfishness, and violence are then used to justify the lockdown. In turn, the corresponding new spiritual quest becomes a journey out of body, away from our humanness, beyond matter, and into whatever substrate, be it ether, electrical wavelengths, or AI, we fetishize at the moment. Digital networks are just the latest media to go from something promoting social bonds to something that destroys them, from fostering humanity to supplanting it. Our current shift may be more profound and permanent, however, because this time we're empowering our anti-human technologies with the ability to retool themselves. Our smart devices iterate and evolve faster than our biology can. We're also tying our markets and security to our machine's continued growth and expanding capabilities. This is self-defeating. We are increasingly depending on technologies built with the presumption of human inferiority and expendability. But the unprecedented speed and extent of this latest reversal from social extension to social annihilation also offers us a terrific opportunity to understand the process by which it happens. Once we do, we'll recognize how it has occurred in myriad ways throughout history, from agriculture and education to currency and democracy. We're witnessing both the promise and peril of a new media era in a single generation. We humans are experiencing a turn of the cycle in real time. This is our chance. Once we're clear what is happening to us and around us, we can choose not to adapt to it any longer, but to oppose it. It's time we reassert the human agenda, and we must do so together, not as the individual players we've been led to imagine ourselves to be, but as the team we actually are, team human. Playing first for Team Human, one of the brightest lights in science journalism, speculative fiction, and pop culture analysis, author and originator of what could only be called a new genre of biotech AI memoir, Annalee Newitz.
Thanks for joining Team Human. Yeah, that was a very rousing intro. Oh, good. I'm <laughs> ready for the revolution. It's time. It's time for the revolution. We're, that's what we're here for, or at least the renaissance. Um, so maybe a, a good strategy for any existential crisis would be to, to start with the present and then go backwards. So, oh, and I had the book. Oh, God damn it. Um, I'll be right back. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Here he comes. <laughs> See, the live, that's, with live you can do anything. Um, that's the beauty. So autonomous, everyone just buy it, all right? Um, <laughs> then read it if you can too. Um, so autonomous blew my mind, but not in the, as, as, as science fiction and, and as a whole lot of things, but not in the, in the, the way that, that, that Arthur C. Clarke or Asimov or someone, not that kind of mind-blowing science fiction. It was more as a, a subtle consideration of autonomy from both a human and a robot perspective. You know, so you start it thinking, oh, it's autonomy and it's about robots and it's about how robots get their autonomy. But this is a world where robots have to earn their autonomy, but people are far from autonomous themselves. Yeah, that's right. So what I wanted to think about was um, a future where uh, robots have become human equivalent. So they have emotions and thoughts and they can be just like people uh, in many ways, but obviously in many ways they're very different. Um, I'm not sure if that's very realistic, but you have to just bear with me. Uh, and what happens is, um, you know, you have to have some way to incentivize making an autonomous being. If a robot is born as an adult, how are you going to inspire people to pay to make them? So uh, a kind of global coalition uh, devoted to property comes up with this idea that robots can be indentured for up to 10 years to whoever pays for their manufacture. And so the idea is that then you're incentivized to make these creatures. Um, and then through a bunch of legal shenanigans, because robots are human equivalent, um, lawyers argue, well, why can't, and they can be indentured, so why can't humans be indentured too? Uh, and so they get the, um, the, uh, a, a new human rights law, which allows humans to become indentured. Because, of course, that's what they would call it, you know, is a human rights law. You have the right to sell yourself into slavery. Right. I love this kind, of, this kind of diminishing equivalencies. It's sort of like <laughs> saying, okay, women have been oppressed for, you know, however many thousand years. Let's just oppress men, too, right? <laughs> yeah, like, if only it were that easy. Um, I, I feel like... <laughs> I feel like but, in this case, because it's an economic kind right. of I mean, deal, right from the you know, book, I got the easier. quote that was just what you were talking about. It's from the book. There were entire text repositories that focused on eliminating the indenture of human. Their pundits argue that humans should not be owned like bots because nobody had paid to make them. Bots who cost money required a period of indenture to make the manufacture worthwhile. No such incentive was required for humans to make humans. That's right, and it's a great way um, to drive a wedge between two groups that should naturally be a team. Indentured bots and indentured humans you know, should work together to free themselves. Uh, but as, as happens in so many um, you know, 
uh, movements in history, uh, groups that are equally oppressed by the same people uh, wind up uh, fighting with each other and wind up on opposite sides, um, even though really their interests are aligned. And so that was one of the things I wanted to capture is how would you um, you know, drive a wedge between these natural allies, and that's how you do it, is by claiming that somehow humans are nifty and special um, and shouldn't have to be owned because they're not like robots. But they basically are. I mean, at least the way we treat them. And you wrote this great article for, uh, what was it called? The, the Humans Behind Google's Algorithms for Ars Technica, and where you were arguing that, that and I just love the term, the term human resources. You know, the person who does human resources in the company is supposed to be the one who's there for you, but what are they, they're treating you like a resource. It's like, oh, so you're a human or, you know? That you <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that article, that was really interesting to report. It was people who are task workers for Google, uh, and what Google does is it farms out these little micro-tasks. It's just like a task rabbit type thing where it's like a five-minute task or a 10-minute task, and it's all uh, largely to do with search results. So they'll feed these raters, they're called raters, like you rate the algorithm. They're testing the search algorithm, and they'll say like, all right, here's a search, uh, here's the results that we returned. Is this good or is this bad? Which is the best search result? And so they have humans rating it and feeding back into the algorithm to improve the algorithm. Unfortunately, all of these workers, even though they're working for Google, are not employed by Google. They're employed by another company called, in, in this case, called Leapforce. Leapforce has now been acquired by Appen, which was their uh, biggest um, rival. Uh, anyway, so Leapforce workers are not given any benefits. They are, you know, work at home, uh, task work. They have no um, recourse to any kind of um, help if they have problems. They never meet their managers. They only meet uh, each other kind of in these chat rooms. They literally do not know the names of their managers because the managers all go by pseudonyms in this chat room. Um, and they're treated horribly. I mean, like I said, first of all, they have no benefits, even though many of them worked full time. Uh, but they also were told that each of the tasks that they do should only take, say, a minute or five minutes. And if they take longer to do these tasks, they're not paid. And so uh, they're, they're only paid for the five minutes, even if it actually takes 10 minutes to figure out sometimes very complicated questions. Um, so I talked to a number of these workers anonymously. Uh, they talked to me anonymously. I mean, they knew who I was. Um, and they told me about their work conditions. And actually, a number of them uh, wound up suing um, over their conditions. Uh, and some of them settled. And, and some of them actually got some money out of the company uh, because of how horribly they had been treated. Uh, but my, my point in that piece, I think, was that these are people who are creating the data for these algorithms that are supposed to not just replace us, but actually help us in the future, help us navigate information, help us get good results when we want to find out what's happening in the world. Um, and in the future, the, this kind of information becomes metadata. It becomes how we understand history, how we understand what happened and what is happening. Um, and we're treating them like garbage. So if you're treating the workers who create this incredibly important data like shit, how good is that data going to be? How good are these algorithms going to be? The data set is terrible. The workers are treated horribly. Um, you know, you're, you're, what you're basically creating is not only the injustice of how these people are being treated now, but also a future where we have just this data that's been right. produced by people who've been abused. I know. It's as if the, the, the pain, suffering, and mindset that they're in when they're creating this data ends up embedded 
in our future. It's the same way, you know, you don't want to eat an animal that's been tortured to death because the, the pain, the suffering of the animal is sort of in the flesh that you're eating. It's right. You don't want a data set created by somebody who basically doesn't care because they're being told, do this in one minute, do this in one minute. And so they're like, fine, I'll just give you the dumbest answer possible. That'll, that's your, there's your algorithm. Great. Right. And then that becomes the landscape on which human civilization is supposed to thrive. Exactly. Yay! <laughs> that Yay. is my point. Yes. But I want to go back to this distinction that you were making between like robots because they're created by people, you know, and required capital, that those can be owned and possessed. Whereas people, because they're, you know, created sort of by God or something or by uh, existence, don't have that. And, and for me, I mean, this is how weird I am. It reminded me of Myth of the Eternal Return, there, where, where he talks about you know, how indigenous cultures had, their religions had two main features. One was reenactment of the gods' actions. They had all of these rituals where you, you know, put on masks and things and you reenact the gods, the, the actions of the gods in order to uh, to understand that there's nothing new under the sun, that people can't actually do something new. We're always just recreating, reenacting. We're not genuinely original. So that you know, every time you make love, you're just recreating Ishtar and you know, Ishtar and and uh, Marduk's uh, uh, fertility rite. And, th and the second was the 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 idea of of reincarnation. That everything is circular. There are no externalities. Everything's going to come back. And when you were making this distinction between uh, uh, humans and robots, at least this sort of capitalist, capitalism's distinction, I mean, it even, it reminded me of uh, Cain and Abel in the Bible, where Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God because he sacrifices uh, uh, grain, something that came from the ground that was God's creation. No, he sacrificed an animal. Uh, Abel sacrificed an animal, which was God's, where Cain sacrificed a harvest that he had grown himself through agriculture, by, through his effort. And God was like, poo-poo on that, and didn't accept that because Cain was acting as if he made this stuff. And it's like, you didn't make that stuff. God made that stuff. You just think you made it. And that's sort of the same distinction here, that as if what, that we're making robots? Are we making robots? Do we make these these intelligences, or are we just sort of reenacting a, a more divine, natural thing? Are we responsible for them in the way that we think we are? Uh. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because because your your robot. Um, so your, I your I don't I, I don't purport to um to to I, I think what the distinction here is that um for me when I'm thinking about how humans treat future robots, and of course this is a thought experiment because we don't really have robots like this in the real world, um, luckily right now. Um, but these are, you know, they're like humans. I think that, you know, it comes out of, you know, work I see happening now as people are trying to develop AI and machine learning and robots. And inevitably, if you talk to roboticists, it finally comes down to the reason they want to invent these creatures is for slavery. And it's to do jobs that we once made slaves do. Um, and we, most places in the world have agreed that that was a terrible idea and that slavery is bad. Uh, it's morally repugnant. Um, but we keep wanting slaves. We keep wanting a class of people that is uh, less than, another, than the other classes that we can use as, you know, 
as cheap labor or to do the ugly things that we don't want to do, to look at a bunch of pictures on Facebook that we don't want to see and decide whether they're, um, you know, whether they're abuse pictures or not. Um, and so I think that for me, the fantasy of creating robots and AI that I see permeating everywhere in Silicon Valley is the fantasy of slaves. And you will actually hear people say, the great thing is they'll be happy slaves because we'll program them to be happy. Um, and as this ethical philosopher I interviewed, Damian Williams said, he's like, well, if, if indeed they are human equivalent, if they're capable of thinking the way humans do and planning for the future and understanding context, they're gonna figure out pretty quickly that being a slave is terrible and they're not going to be happy because the state of being enslaved is automatically an unhappy state. So I don't think we should ever fool ourselves into thinking we're gonna create happy slaves. Well, at least if we could create indifferent ones. I mean, a caterpillar, a caterpillar uh, tractor is not unhappy, you know, digging. But it's not happy either. It's just digging. Uh, that's true. I mean, we haven't talked to it, so we don't, we don't really know what it's thinking. But, I mean, again, a caterpillar tractor is not the same thing as these kind of robots that I'm talking about. Again, it's a fantasy. It's a thought experiment. It's well, a thought right. experiment. We don't, you know, it's like, I'm not, I am not worried about caterpillar tractors. I, I think they're awesome. Like, I'd love to be friends with one. Like, if it wants to be my friend, yeah. I think they're really cool and giant and awesome. But, um, but I'm not worried about their freedom. Yeah, but, you know, with the, my, problem, my problem with the thought experiment, and it, it's not yours necessarily, but my problem when I see like a, uh, you know, a Terminator movie, and oh, the robots, we enslaved them too much, and now they're all mad, and they're going to come back and get us and all that. Or Battlestar Galactica. And, and Battlestar Galactica, and people are all freaked out about that, and I'm like, oh, it's so easy for white Western science fiction fans to worry about their robot slaves, and it's like, but we still haven't dealt with the slaves that built our country. You know, we're, it's like it's easier to worry about Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, going down with the, the thing at the end of Terminator than... than I think, years that's ago. Such, I think that that's such a good point. Um, I think that we have not dealt with the history of slavery in this country, and a lot of other countries haven't dealt with it either. Uh, it's a particularly pernicious problem in the United States. We're still living through the after effects of slavery. And I think the reason we have that fantasy over and over again is exactly what you're saying. It's we're working through the, the totally and completely unresolved trauma of having been a slave society. And one of the things that I really emphasize in Autonomous, which really is a book about slavery, among mm. other things, is that if you have slavery in any part of your culture, the entire culture is infected by it. You can't have slavery over over there in the corner and it's like, oh, but this is our little slave corner. Everybody else is fine. Um, you know, I'm totally unaffected. Uh, it, it is, it's something that, that makes the entire culture into a slave Right, culture. I mean, and that takes me back to myth of eternal return. That, you know, when we have a progress-oriented civilization, then it's like all that stuff is behind you and we're just going forward. There's sort of cause and effect before, after, that was back then, and now we're going there, eyes on the prize, ends justifies the means. If you're in a circular culture, you realize, no, you can never escape that. You can't buy an iPhone 10 without employing, employing slaves or employing slavery. I mean, so you really want to line up for that? Yeah, no, yeah, line up for your slave-made bauble. Um, I, I see what you're talking about. You're talking about sort of the dialectic of history. Right. So, yeah, um, that, that we are constantly kind of reconfronting the same problems. And I think that's true, and I definitely think 
that if we wind up getting what a lot of people in Silicon Valley want, which is human equivalent robots to be our slaves, um, we are gonna confront that again, uh, and it's, it's gonna be just as bad as it was the first time. Right, and then, I mean, and, and to your earlier point, the idea that there's this sort of period of indenture to pay back those poor capitalists who did the first investment to make this thing happen. I mean, the logic that you're applying to robots in the book also is applied to pharmaceuticals, which is what we're living through today. It's like, oh no, we can't let poor people have those drugs for free or for something that they can pay because then the original investor won't have been properly incentivized to have made the drug in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's one of the, I mean, we're dealing with that so much in this country right now. So one of the, the main plots in this book, other than slavery, is uh, one of the characters is a pharmaceutical pirate, and she's stealing, uh, she's stealing drugs from wealthy companies and, and giving them to the poor the way you would if you could. Um, and she does it not just by stealing it, by reverse, I mean, she's a... Yeah, a, she's a, a scientist. She's so a scientist. She's, she reverse engineers it and then remanufactures it. I mean, it's like the, the pirates are deep nerds, which is kind of cool. <laughs> They are, like all, all good pirates. Um, well, they were. Nerds. Originally, I mean, the great pirates that Bucky Fuller talked about knew how to fight with swords. They knew languages. They knew money conversion. They knew everything. And that's why they were such a threat to yeah, early Yeah, that's why states. they made deals with kings and queens, right. you know, to help them protect their military and stuff and protect their land. Um, so, yeah, I think that one of the things that happens with pharmaceuticals and with healthcare today is that we do, because of this idea that capitalism should be the incentive for everything and profit should be the incentive for everything, we get into these weird moral pretzels where instead of realizing or instead of accepting that healthcare is a right and that it should possibly exist outside of market incentives, uh, we, instead we get this sort of terrible moment in the pharmaceutical industry where you have literally robber barons of pharmaceuticals uh, who will buy a drug and then jack up the price enormously uh, so that people who are paying $20 for a drug are suddenly paying $900 for a drug. And if the thing is, is that that would be fine if it was our slave-made iPhone because I don't need an iPhone, but if I need a drug to live, that's a whole other proposition. And I think there is some argument to be made that maybe you do need a phone to live, um, but I don't think it's quite as immediate as needing the drug to like not be dead tomorrow. Right, and, and by, by setting these, these thought experiments in the realm of technology, what happens is it, it, technology, or even in the real world, technology seems to act like this, like this centrifuge, this feedback accelerator. So dynamics that may have been around for a thousand years end up really more uh, uh, playing themselves out so much more rapidly in, in such, like I was saying in the monologue, they seem to be playing out in real time. They become apparent and visible in a way, you know, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's dumbwaiter. You know, it wasn't visible people, to people that that was really just a way, that wasn't a way of making life easier for his slaves. The dumbwaiter was so that they wouldn't have to look at the slaves coming up the stairs with all the stuff. That It could just make it look like, oh, the food has just come, you know? <laughs> but, but now that it's like technology seems to accelerate these dynamics and then your fiction then makes it more apparent somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's nice about fiction is it does make those kinds of contradictions apparent. I think that in real life, when you're living in real time, it may sometimes feel like it's really fast because we get a new iPhone every year. I'm just going to keep picking on iPhones, <laughs> even though I'm an Android user, so I should probably pick on Androids. But um, I think that if you are living through history in real time, it doesn't feel fast. Like, it feels... A lot of this stuff does feel slow. Like, I don't... When I look at sort of... Um, you know, social change as opposed to like, you know, 
which new computers are out every year. Um, I don't see it as rapidly changing. I think technology is rapidly changing, and I think sometimes that affects our culture, but I also, you know, we were just talking about slavery earlier and, and sort of the after effects of slavery and how we're still living through them. I mean, it's been about 150 years and we're still living with those after effects. So that feels very slow to me and I don't think technology is affecting that larger, slower social wave um, or social uh, shift, if it is indeed uh, shifting. Um, so I think it's easy to fool ourselves and say like, oh, because technology is moving so fast, we're changing so fast. But I think it's more just that we seek novelty, we've always sought novelty, and that is a great distraction. And it allows us to forget that actually there's all this other stuff that's changing really slowly. Right. Well, in some <laughs> ways though, it amplifies the existing dynamics. So that's if true. we are ignoring slavery without technology, now we have digital technology to really amplify and further embed that which we don't want That's to look at. That's true, and but in that sense, what you're saying is that in it, in a weird way, technology is slowing down social change because what it's doing is spreading it through space really fast. It's it's moving virally. You may have heard of this thing yeah, called viral viruses, yeah. viral memes, um, and uh, and instead of instead of us, you know, sort of integrating that information and analyzing it and moving beyond it somehow. Instead, we're just stuck in it. You know, it's just like more and more memes about like, you know, how slavery is awesome and how, you know, it's great to have a job where you don't get benefits and stuff like that. Um, or how it's really awesome to, um, you know, I, I'm, tr I'm trying to think, what were some of the Russian memes that we were all supposed to be clicking on? Like, you know, whatever those Russian memes were yeah. that we're all gonna find out about in Robert Mueller's report. Um, you know, the, those are embedding us even further in the narrative. That... Right, but they were just, I mean, as any original kind of media virus does, they were just leveraging and exploiting hidden agendas in popular culture. They were looking, what's repressed? Oh, the race is repressed, and, and, and anger at, at neoliberals, is, is, there's this repressed, mm -hmm. un, unarticulated Hatred rage. Hatred of the election system in general, like people just thinking that elections are bullshit. And, right. and that was actually one of the agendas, was just to spread that meme, that elections are bullshit, and it's that's something we've all thought. And in more benevolent hands, though, I mean, the the great hope in in your novel and your work that it reminded me really of of the early kind of cyberpunk ethos that the good guys are the pirates. That it's like everyone kind of goes to university and then learns these super high-tech stuff or super high-tech bioengineering, and then they have a choice to make. Am I gonna kind of stay in the corporate-sponsored university realm, or am I gonna go to a free lab, which is basically like a, a you know... A makerspace, A, a yeah. makerspace and be a, a pirate nerd. And the pirate nerds have, it's funny, because there are these scenes that are happening in the university, and they're sort of doing little colloquia for each other and stuff, and teaching, oh, here's just how you reverse engineer a protein thing, or folding something. And then in the crazy little pirate space, all the little illegal hackers are having equivalent information exchanges. I mean, do you see, uh, you're more connected, I think, at this point, to the hacker culture than I am, do makerspaces have those kinds of information exchanges? Is there that same sort of, can you get the equivalent of a, of a Stanford lab exchange of ideas in a makerspace in Portland? 
I think that the idea is that you wouldn't want a Stanford equivalent <laughs> uh, type of education, right? Because that type of education is only just teaching you how to obey and conform um, and, uh, and mm. take tests. Hey, I went to Berkeley. They taught me to obey and conform and take <laughs> tests too, all right? <laughs> That's how you get A's. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole, I mean, it's a lot of what you were talking about in your intro where you said, you know, we've got to be a team. If we're going to resist, you know, you can't resist alone, despite what Batman says. Um, you know, you have to be, I'm so sick of that whole, like, loner hero thing. Like, who, what, we, I'd really want to meet, like, all the slaves who, like, made Batman's, like, armor and stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not just his, like, sidekick dude. Um, so uh, I think, you, you know, there, there is a lot of informal education and a lot of formal education that goes on, and we all had to learn how to pirate somewhere, and it was probably in a hackerspace. I'm, I'm not saying that you should pirate children. I think piracy is wrong. <laughs> but if you were going to learn to pirate, pirate that's where a, you'd go. Pirate with a posse. Mm -hmm. Pirate <laughs> with ethics and with a posse. I know. Well, if you want to be ethical, you have to be a pirate at this point. Yeah. And I think the other thing I was going to say about hope is that I, I think, um, you know, it, it is a little bit depressing when the only hope we have is that people have to become pirates and have to live outside the system, um, not by choice. So there is a, that is hope, and I, I, I do have a lot of hope and resistance, but I also feel like I wish that we didn't have to have hope only in these um, tiny pockets of resistance. It would be nice if there was more, a more mainstream hopeful movement. Yeah, it's interesting. I've even stopped using the word resistance because resistance feels like it's from the electronic age. You know, in, in digital media, there is no resistor. You can't attenuate it. You know, all you can do is oppose. It's like on or off. So now I'm like, I'm not a resistant. I'm, a, I'm an opponent, you know, opposition. You know, it's a little scarier, but what the heck? You know? <laughs> Go for yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the, the, the other, uh, another big thread in the book is, is sex. And I love talking about sex. Because um, it's so much better than talking about opposition. Um, the robot wants a connection with its master. You know, we'll call it master for now, partner, master, with its human. And there's this moment where, you know, the, the robots are basically gender-free or fluid, if, at, at, you know, at, at worst. They don't really have gender, they're right. robots. <laughs> but this robot then assumes a female role so its master won't feel like a faggot. Is what he's he because he he's scared if he he's attracted to his robot, but if it's a boy, he's going to be freaked out. So the robot's going to pretend basically it's a girl. Okay, I'll take on that role in order not to freak you out. Yeah. So the robot character uh, whose name is Paladin, because like if you were going to build a robot, of course you'd name it Paladin, um, especially <laughs> if you played D and D when you were growing up. Um, so uh, Paladin is like a tank bot. Like Paladin is really big and bulky and has like shields and like lasers and like hidden guns and like she just like all the cool shit. Um, and because of the fact that Paladin is so big and bulky and tank-like, uh, humans just refer to him as he because it's just sort of what they think. They see a big old tank and they're like, oh, well, that's obviously a dude. Um, and Pal but Paladin doesn't care. Paladin doesn't have a gender. None of the robots do. And, um, you know, what to me was really interesting about thinking about Paladin's gender and later she does have sex with a human. Um, it's really awesome too. It's super hot. Um, I mean, I thought it was hot. Maybe you wouldn't, but, um, but it's in there. And um, 
they they don't it's not like normal human or I don't know if there is such a thing as normal human sex, but it's not like human sex um, when they do. But what was interesting for me about that was thinking about how Paladin is a creature. The thing that makes Paladin so alien is that she's a creature who is born basically with adult consciousness. She can analyze, she can make decisions within her limited range of decisions she's allowed to make because she's programmed. Um, she can uh, plan for the future. She can, you know, figure out who's a friend and who's a foe. Um, you know, he has all of the kind of things that we associate with adult consciousness, but she's never been socialized. So uh, she's basically encountering gender uh, in a way that humans never do because humans are taught about gender over years and years of socializing, um, being a, a helpless creature where you can't even move, being a helpless creature when you have no power and no, no social position. And all of these ideas about gender are kind of jammed into our heads at times when we're very vulnerable and actually have nothing to compare it to and can't analyze it. And there's all this unconscious stuff that happens, all these ideas that we take on and, and things that we assume about people based on gender. And it's all stuff that we learn during this time that that Paladin as a bot never has. Like imagine encountering gender as an adult, having never had that whole like training period in your life where you're taught like what it's supposed to mean to have a gender. Um, and Paladin is just like, what the fuck is that? You know, like he's like trying to kind of figure it out based on the futuristic equivalent of the internet, which I just called the net because I figured in the future, we're all gonna be super nostalgic for the 90s, so we're gonna call it the net. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're all gonna be like reading Howard Rheingold in the future, I'm like, oh, that's what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and, and totally Paladin would be doing that. And so he's, he's trying to figure it out, but he really doesn't ever take on a gender role. He just figures out that his human, who he thinks is really cute, um, his human is really freaked out about this whole thing called faggot. And Paladin's like, I don't even know what that is. I have to Google that too. Um, they don't have Google in the future, but Paladin has to kind of figure out what that means. It's some gender thing. It's like something where humans really care about it. They care about what gender they have feelings for. And so Paladin finally is like, okay, obviously my human has this big issue with gender. And if I'm gonna be a, if, if he's gonna call me a he, he's not gonna be able to have sex with me and, um, and Paladin's like, well, basically, she wants to try having sex, so she's like, sure, fine, I'm female. Go ahead, call me, you know, use the female pronoun. The fun thing for me as a writer was that literally nothing changes. Paladin is still a giant tank. Paladin still does the same exact stuff, same kind of clueless, friendly, bumbling bot, although she's not really bumbling. She's, you know, she's a killing machine. Um, and she's... With she heart. Does, with heart, you know, but she also does crush some heads. Um, and so, but to her human, suddenly she's so different, even though literally nothing's changed except the pronoun. Like, so it's not really like a trend, it's not like a transgender thing. It's not like she's secretly female. She's not doing what a, a person would do if they were transitioning. She's just like, fine, pick whatever pronoun's gonna make you comfortable. You know, not that she says it that way. She's very polite. Um, she's not sarcastic in any way um, about it. But, I, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's alien because, like I said, she just hasn't had this period of weird socialization. Right, and she gets to do the kind of the Martian anthropology thing on, on sex. But then it's also as if she's saying that 
why is sex such a big deal to humans? Not just gender, but sex. I mean, so she can do it, but it's like... She can't I, really do it. Well, she kind of do it. Oh, kinda. she doesn't have all the full parts. She, she hasn't has been... no genitals. Right. She's just like a tank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why I think he's kind of sexy. Like, I mean, if you're going to be a robosexual, like, you should be attracted to, like, chrome, you know? Although, right. <laughs> she's not chrome. He, he's, like, actually kind of like a matte black, which is even kind of hotter. I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of like a... Do you guys remember what next boxes looked like? The sun next? Yeah. You wanted to have sex with your next. Actually, I do know one person who really did want to have sex with their next. And maybe did. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, and, and Paladin it has experience... It gets to experience autonomy. And I guess I'm wondering... I guess it's a thought experiment, but do you believe that robots and AI are actually going to achieve uh, awareness, consciousness? Do you think this is coming? That's a really hard question. Um, I don't know. I think uh, many, many scientists are trying, and I think that when it, if it does happen, when it happens, I wonder if we're gonna even be able to recognize it, because I think that um, consciousness takes many, many forms. I mean, even among the people in this room, you know, consciousness probably feels a lot different and looks a lot different. Like, people are very different. There's very different kinds of, um, you know, having a brain. You know, people, the idea that there's a neurotypical person, I think, is is luckily being debunked now. That there, there really is no such thing as a perfectly neurotypical person. And so imagine if, if a robot actually did achieve consciousness, it's extremely non-neurotypical. It's not, it's consciousness is not like a person. What if we don't even recognize it, you know? Right. I mean, that's what I, I mean, that's kind of what I worry about when I think about that happening because I, I feel like it would probably be some kind of emergent property of an already existing system. It wouldn't be like in Metropolis where it's like, poof, you're a, you know, you're a robot now, you're alive. Right, and then on the other hand, I get worried that once AIs can like pass some kind of a Turing test. You know, it'll be less an indication of, of, of AI's evolution to consciousness than more an indication of humanity's just descent into being so stupid that they can't tell the difference between an AI and a conscious being. You know? Well, remember what we were talking about before about how college sort of teaches you to like obey the rules and pass tests? So maybe we'll just have an AI that can pass it that test, but is it really conscious? Is it really autonomous? Right. Like, and that's it's gonna the question. Certainly, it's it's going to yeah. want us to believe. I mean, imagine if your little AI on is going, oh, mommy, don't turn me off, please. Oh, it hurts when you do that. It hurts. Oh, yeah, do that. Yeah, that's better. Well, Pay we already money. have bots that do right. that, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and we all have feelings for them, too. Right. Like, you know, I mean, geez, like, I, I like, have developed emotions about like the Pokemon I've collected on Pokemon Go, you know, like. <laughs> and they want you to. Yeah, and they want you to. And I, I think that's easy to do. Like it's easy to get people, it's easy to use a bot to sucker someone into having feelings. We already know that that's true. We were just talking about how, you know, Russian bots, through, you know, kind of through the election. Um, and that's, that's a perfect example of that. I don't, I don't think you're gonna need a fully conscious creature to do that. In fact, I think if we did have a fully conscious creature, you might be struggling with people not having feelings for it because it wouldn't act the way we expect. It wouldn't say, mommy, mommy. It would be like doing something robot-like, you know? <laughs> It'd be like, hello. 
let's let's talk about ethics. <laughs> I, I mean, the the thing I like about your kind of futurism is it's not that. I really, I've always hated futurists because I've always seen them as these sort of evil propagandists just trying to make you more dependent on Wired Magazine for knowing where to invest your money or something. <laughs> you know, or using the future as some distraction from the present, you know, uh, or Kevin Kelly's whole inevitability thing. It just gives me the creeps. Um, but but with, with your futurism seems to be an optimistic act. You know, just to imagine a future is an optimistic act right now. I mean, and, and as, the, as the author of How to Survive a Mass Extinction, um, you argue that, that fear, which is what comes up for me, that fear is the wrong response. You know, and, and you know, saying that humans have just wrecked everything is the wrong response. And, and I like that. I hate when we say, oh, look at humans with this cancer on the planet. I hate your team human. Humans, you know, I'm on team kitten because humans suck, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although cats are like a terrible invasive species. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was really sorry when I heard that. They actually are, are like really oh, well. a terrible menace. But they purr. <laughs> But I like I like Wait, are that, is that anti-cat propaganda yeah. from the audience or is that pro-cat propaganda? Pro, okay. <laughs> it's what makes them special. <laughs> but but I, I like that, that human beings are not a cancer to be eliminated. You know, so what is the right response to the possibility of mass extinction? Um, I mean, I think there is a very real possibility that we're in a mass extinction right now, and I'm sure lots of um, listeners and people here tonight have heard this already. Uh, there's a lot of scientific evidence that we're seeing enormous numbers of extinctions among animals that's much, much above the, the typical levels of extinction. So we, we may be really facing that. And I think that the there is that urge to kind of retreat and say, well, it's our fault because, you know, we did initiate uh, this current round of climate change that we're having on the planet. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution did, in fact, um, cause a lot of, of problems for the entire globe. It, it's changing weather, it's changing temperatures, it's changing environments. Um, I think the proper response, instead of fear and self-hatred, is to take stock of what we've done, acknowledge what we've done. This is going to sound a little bit like um, therapy for <laughs> humanity. Um, but I mean... I, there has been very little acknowledgement of that. I mean, I think things like the Paris Accord are maybe just the tip of the iceberg of admitting, okay, here's the extent of the problem. And once we understand that problem, then we need to start acting to fix it and to change it. And the answer is not to, you know, limit the growth of humans because whenever we try to mandate how many babies people can have or, or can't have, um, that always ends badly. Um, so I don't think that that's a good solution. It's, it's too much, it re relies too much on a potentially oppressive situation. Um, I think we have to use what we have in our scientific um, libraries to figure out how better to feed people, um, how to use sustainable energy. We already know that there's a lot of energy out there that is sustainable. We know how to live as a carbon neutral species. We've got this awesome thing called the sun um, which we we actually um, we scoot around it every year. Um, I've seen it. I've seen you've seen it. <laughs> We've all seen it. Um, and I think you know really it's 
the attitude I, I most wish I could see more was a kind of just a can-do attitude. You know, a get, let's get it done. You know, let's stop hating ourselves. Let's stop blaming ourselves and say, all right, how can we fix it? You know, it's good to admit we fucked up. Okay, we really did. And not just us, but a whole bunch of people 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 300 years ago. There's been a lot of a mess. And now it's time to clean it up. And what's the first step to cleaning it up? I mean, we already know. Like I said, sustainable energy is a step toward cleaning it up. Uh, not screwing up animal habitats, you know, limiting our footprint. That doesn't mean limiting humans, but limiting our footprint on the planet. Um, and there's a lot of other things that, that we can certainly do that are very simple, just kind of like eat a balanced breakfast kind of solutions. And, um, you know, not, not that we all should eat a balanced breakfast, but that we need to approach the planet uh, as, as a place that we're going to live for a really long time and that we need to live in balance um, with the ecosystems that we have here. And also part of it means admitting that basically we do already control those ecosystems and that the answer isn't to pull away from ecosystems, but to, to acknowledge that we are shepherding our ecosystems and that we have, we've encroached enough that we can't just say like, all right, we're just going to stop touching the Amazon. We have to do things like, no, actually replant it and actually make sure that it's growing and actually make sure that there's species in there that function within that ecosystem. Uh, and that might mean moving animals around and creating ecosystems that don't quite look like they did 100 years ago, but that are still sustainable and diverse. Um, so we have to kind of let go of this idea that we're going to go back to Eden and start engineering um, a sustainable natural world and, and not think of that as being something terrible and dirty. But that's, you know, but it's dirty in the right way. It's getting our hands full of dirt <laughs> right. and treating the planet like, you know, the machine that it is. But it's not, it's not necessarily pushing through with Monsanto to a bioengineered future as much as also at least, you know, retrieving some of the indigenous technologies and, and understandings of soil management and crop rotation and uh, 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 speciation that right. seems to have been lost to capitalism. There has been a lot that's been lost and there's a lot of, um, that there's a lot that we're only just now learning about how farming worked, for example, in tropical forests. Uh, there's now a ton of evidence coming out that even 30 or 35,000 years ago, people were just starting to do things to farm trees in, in forests. We, we used to believe that civilization and farms kind of began uh, you know, in Mesopotamia, but now it really does seem like the tropics, we were seeing people uh, choosing you know, to plant trees in certain areas, they were treating the soil to make it uh, richer for trees to grow in. Um, and there's a lot of evidence, like I said, that's emerging all the time about this. And so that is what we need to be doing. We need, I mean, my ideal, when I say things like we need to be engineering ecosystems, what I imagine the outcome being is not like a city having smushed over all the forests, but that we end up living in trees that are, you know, that are basically alive, you know, and we're living inside of them and we have great computers in there and we've got, you know, not like Avatar, okay, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, that we would have technology that wouldn't exist in contradiction with the environment and that we could somehow live in balance. Um, we might treat living things as if they were alive. 
Yeah, treat living things as if they were alive, but also by the same token, don't romanticize nature and make it sound like it's some magical, mystical thing. The earth is a machine. It has inputs and outputs. It's a giant chemical reaction. That's what the carbon cycle is. It's a massive chemical reaction. And so if we approach it that way, in a rational way, and we think about how do we, we've already pushed the levers on the machine. We've already loaded the atmosphere with carbon, so we know how to do that. So let's work on figuring out how to take carbon out of the atmosphere now. Um, and and I, like I said, not shy away from shepherding this huge machine that we live on. And I think there's a lot of fear among environmentalists that if you know, we start using language like that, like saying that the earth is a machine, a lot of people when I say that just immediately are like, fuck off, like they don't wanna hear that. Um, because it sounds like I'm saying, turn everything into a machine. And I'm saying, no, just treat it. Every ecosystem is a system. And it is something that's rational. It's something we can study. And we can improve it. We can keep it healthy. And the more we understand how it works, the more we can keep it healthy. And the more we can actually live in harmony with it. And so I think we, we need to, like I said, don't romanticize nature live with nature and make sure that we honor nature the best way we can, which is with rationality and science. Well, thank you, Annalie Newitz. Thank you for, for joining me. Team Human. <laughs> you will have her back on stage for questions and ideas. You're on Team Human coming to you alive from Gray Area Foundation's historic Grand Theater, a bastion of humanistic resistance in the otherwise gentrified monument to venture capitalism once known as San Francisco. Hello, Team Human listeners. This is producer-engineer Stephen here. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our very first live Team Human event at Gray Area Foundation for the Arts in San Francisco. This month, we'll be featuring this live show in four installments. We'll pick things up right where we left off next week when Douglas is joined by Howard Rheingold. I called it a mind amplifier. What's really interesting about this technology is not that it enables us to harness more energy, but that it enables us to extend our power to perceive and to think and to communicate. Along the way, it intersected with capitalism. Supporters through Patreon have complete access to the uncut two-hour show today. Go to patreon.com slash teamhuman. And please visit teamhuman.fm for the entire archive of our shows, links, ways to support the show, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.